couple of things. One, um, I, I'm going to just, we have a pastor and his family here visiting from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. And uh, he serves bivocationally, which means he works twice as hard as I do. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I've done that before, so I know it to be true. And, and uh, anyway, uh, pray that God blesses you while you're here. Um, uh, and, and also, just for those of you that are newer or maybe just somehow it's passed you up that this exists, if, if you, like the handout that's inside your bulletin, it's got the sermon notes, a um, couple of things. If you want to just kind of get, every Saturday I send out a, a preview of what the sermon's going to be, and then every now and then again when I put a blog post up, I'll send out something, an email just saying, hey, there's this, and you can go <clears throat> know that it's there, it'll alert you to that. And uh, if you want to get those, the, the, the preview, really, what it does is it helps you prepare your heart for the next morning. What are we going to be looking at? Start thinking about those things. Maybe read the scriptures in advance and so forth. On Inside your bulletin, there's a, a scan code right here. And if you scan that and go there, you can tell it what you'd like to get and not get. So uh, that's there. I have people ask me all the time, oh, you do that? I say, yes, I've only gotten up and talked about it before sermons, you know, 50 times. Uh, <laughs> just oblivious. So if you're paying attention this time and you would like to have that, please go in and, and do that. Uh, and and that'll, that'll help. So also, by the way, while you're at it, if you're, if you're newer here, uh, the one at the top just lets us know you've been hanging around and, and that you'd like to maybe uh, find out more about the church. You have an opportunity to say what you'd like to, to, to maybe uh, get information on. So we'd love for you to do that as well. Well, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and we'll start right at the beginning of the book of Psalms in Psalm 1. We're going to do, I, 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 between Jonah and um, the um, uh, time of my sabbatical starts, I've got three Sundays. And I thought, what, what would I do in three Sundays? Well, I'm not going to start the book of Romans. Uh, you know, <laughs> probably be a bad idea. Um, but, but I've had on my heart to do a series uh, really since the beginning of the year. You may remember uh, the first Sunday of this year, I believe it was the second, uh, I did a message called Kingdom Praying. And uh, there's a section in that that this whole series is an expansion on, and where we talked about the Psalms as a, a, a form of praying, your kingdom come. And so we're going to be looking at that in this series and uh, working our way through uh, the Psalms. And uh, so one moment here, I'm just fixing my, my computer as we go. Um, so if you would, Psalm 1, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. I know many of you use that. Many use the ESV. Um, I just change what I use all the time. I don't know. Just, just use whatever. Um, but I'm using the NIV this week. Uh, and, uh, and it's the 2011 uh, variety. So uh, if you happen to have the older one, uh, it will vary, which apparently on our new software, we have the older version. I'm not sure how that happened, but anyway, um, you may even see the wrong one up there. But Psalm uh, 1, and I'm going to read the first two psalms together before we start uh, the message. And by the way, the series title is Praying in a Broken World for the Kingdom Come. Praying in a Broken World for the Kingdom Come. And um, Psalm 1 Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, 
which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And then the second psalm we read. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Christ, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And Lord, as we come to your word, Write in our hearts the enduring enduring truths of your word. Because when we stand in your word, we too will stand in the day of judgment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Athanasius said, quote, Most of Scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. The Psalms speak for us. You see, the, the Psalms are somewhat unique in that they are not the word of God like the prophets who spoke on God's behalf to God's people. Uh, they, they, they are not really even like the epistles, which are letters written by God's apostles to His people. But the Psalms are prayers which were first written as the word of humans to God. And then, through the Scripture, they were given from God back to us to teach us how to speak to Him. That's really an interesting dynamic that we have in the Psalms, and it, it's, it makes it unique among the, the uh, books of the Bible. Psalms teach us how to pray by showing us how to pray. By putting the words in our mouth, which we might not know to speak or even dare to speak, but they teach us to speak those words. Do you use the Psalms to pray? Just a, you don't have to answer out loud, but just kind of think for a moment. Do you use the Psalms to pray? I mean, I know we all know that it's in our Bible. But my question is, do we use it, the Psalms, to pray? Do you often wonder um, if they have any connection to your life when you're reading them? Like, wow, this is strange stuff. I, what are they talking about? Um, I mean, do you wonder if they're even useful as prayers today? And if so, how? Do you want to use them 
but find them unhelpful at times. Like you just open to a psalm and you start reading and you're like, whoa, I don't know that I should be reading this. You know, it doesn't really sound Christian. I mean, there are times, right, when it, it feels that way in the psalms. Most studies uh, in the psalms in the last hundred years have focused on categorizing the psalms. In other words, you have royal psalms, uh, uh, you, you, you have uh, laments, you have hymns, you have imprecatory psalms. You know, those are the ones like strike my enemy and kill him, you know, imprecatory psalms. Uh, the name seems fitting, even though I don't always know what it means, but that's what they're called. And, and uh, we've, we've done psalm studies that follow that approach, and that is helpful. And I would do them again. But I think we need to remember that those categories were not given to us in Scripture. They're observations we make by looking at similarities between psalms, and we come up with categories so we can categorize. It's like when you look at plants, you start categorizing things, and well, they're in this family, and they're in this family. Well, that's good, right? And it is helpful, but the psalms didn't come to us that way. They came to us as they are, Psalm 1, right through 150. That, that's the canon. That's the scripture as we have it. And so we, we should at least at some point ask ourselves, the way they're given to us, does that communicate something? The way that it is given to us, does that communicate something? I mean, for instance, we could ask the same question of the Gospels. The fact that we have four Gospels, the fact that they are given to us as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is there anything in that that we should learn? And I would say yes, but that's another sermon, not going there today. But I would, I would suggest that the construction of the Psalms as we have it, the way it's laid out, has meaning. And we'll talk about that in this series and today in particular. Um, I believe that when we understand something of the fact that their form, the way they're given, uh, should inform them, that that begins to help them, Psalms become more helpful in teaching us how to pray today. So Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, of course, the rest of the Lord's Prayer. But that phrase in particular strikes me. And that message that I did in January, I suggested that the Psalms were kingdom prayers. Or as I put it then, the kingdom of God is the unifying theme of the Psalms. The the Psalms, in effect, are crying out, Your kingdom come, your will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Um, And as we go through this series... Um, I want to walk through the Psalms, exploring how that is so. Exploring how it is that the Psalms teach us to pray in a broken world for the kingdom come. How praying the Psalms, both individually and corporately, helps to form or shape us into the people of Christ's kingdom. A people that do His will on earth as it is in heaven. And I think these two Psalms that we mix together in our call and response this morning... They, they really speak to how they teach us, how they help us to do His will in earth as it is in heaven. They instruct us in that way. And we'll talk more about that in one of the other messages in this series. Much of our Bibles, uh, the, the, the books within them, are, are written in narrative. That would be the genre. We'd some kind, some form of narrative uh, would be the, the, the predominant form that we have in, in, the, in, in our uh, Bibles. And it's often been said that the whole Bible tells one story, right? And that's true. I mean, I think the whole Bible tells one story. I think that's helpful to remember. It's helpful for understanding what's going on in the Bible. 
But by saying that the whole Bible tells one story, we are not saying that everything in the Bible is narrative. You see the distinction there? We might think, well, if the whole Bible is telling one story, it must all be narrative or story. But no, it's not actually. There are a variety of different things in there. There are commands. So they fit within this grand meta-narrative, if you will, that, that, that sits behind it in which they, they sit. And, and what I'm saying today and in this series is that if we sit back and look at the Psalms, while the genre of the Psalms is clearly not narrative, that even the book of Psalms tells a story. And that when we learn that story, it will help us to understand what the individual psalm is doing. Now, I have to be honest with you. I can't give you the exact story of the psalms in every detail. I can't say where everyone fits. But there is a a, a trend. There is a a line that you can follow through the psalms. And they they do tell a story. And I, I love the fact that we don't have all the exact answers to how everything fits. But as we explore them, we find that our lives fit in that story at different times in different places. And those psalms become helpful to us in many ways as, as we go through them. And having learned them, they will be beneficial to us. In our series in Jonah, if you may remember back when we were in chapter 2, we discovered that when Jonah found himself in dire straits, what did he rely on to teach him how to pray? The book of Psalms. Because virtually every phrase in his prayer came right out of the book of Psalms. And so we looked at that. In that series, and I want us to learn the Psalms in such a way that they could benefit us in our times of desperate straits as well. When we see that story that that, that I'm talking about, it helps us understand the Psalms. It helps us understand how they are to inform our prayers, and it helps us make sense of some of the more difficult Psalms. And I'll be honest with you, I will not solve every riddle in the Psalms in this series. I mean, well, three weeks. But even if I had 30 weeks, I would not solve every riddle. There are some difficult things in the Psalms. But I do think I'll I'll give us the tools wherewith we can grapple with them in a healthy way, that we can walk with them in a healthy way and understand why and how they might be there for our benefit. So that's at least a goal that we have in mind. Um, So we're going to explore this uh, uh, today under these three headings. Psalms of the Suffering King and His Kingdom. Psalms of the ultimate coming of the kingdom. And then the last heading we're going to have today is the Psalter and us. And that, that one's really focused on application. What do we do with all this? So let's begin under that first heading, Psalms, in the suffer, uh, Psalms of the Suffering King and His Kingdom. Now, Psalm 1, which we read to start, blessed is the one who walks in the, the, or does not walk in the way of sinners and stand, or stand in the way of sinners, walk in the ungodly and so forth. What? What is he doing? He's setting up the righteous and then not so the wicked, right? So there's this contrast set up in the first psalm between the righteous and the wicked. And of course, the the righteous is the one who submits himself to God as king, submits himself to God's law, right? Kings make laws. God has a law. Submit themselves to God as king. And and so we we get this right off uh, the start that there's this contrast. Um, And and that contrast will be held before us throughout the entire 150 psalms. We never lose sight of the righteous and the wicked. They exist in all 150 psalms, or throughout that story, I should say. The righteous are those who meditate in God's law day and night with a heart to do them. It's not just a, uh, you know, I'm just doing it out of a have-to sort of thing, but I want to. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and they will, by implication, stand. They will not get blown away in the judgment. The wicked, on the other hand, do not delight in God's law, but by implication, they hate it. 
While the righteous bear fruit in season, the wicked dry up and become like chaff, which the wind blows away. They will not, of course, stand in the day of judgment. They'll be blown away. If all we had were Psalm 1, like that, the Psalms ended there. Here's a Psalm, that's it. We might presume that in life, the righteous are always doing great and the wicked are always suffering. Fire faith. To believe that the righteous will be blessed, that they are blessed, and that the wicked will not stand, will require faith. And that's what the rest of the Psalms show us, is that we're going to have to have faith to, to walk this out. If God is your king, it requires faith. Well, Psalm 2 introduces an age-old conflict, which helps explain why it's not the case. As we read, the rulers of this world, the rulers of this age, they reject the law of the Lord. They rail against God's king, the anointed one. But God sits in heaven laughing. They cannot thwart his rule and will eventually have to bow down and kiss the anointed one. However, don't think that just because God laughs at them, the righteous who follow God do not suffer in a world where the wicked have not all bowed down yet. And that's where the Psalms begin. After that, those really, you could say, two introductory Psalms. Psalms 1 introduces the whole, but I think Psalm 2 really introduces at least the first three books of Psalms and kind of sets up that contrast. There, with Psalm 3, we have the beginning of the Psalms of David. You'll find in the heading, the Psalm of David. Now, David is a human king who represents Israel's rejection of God as king on the one hand, but also he represents God's chosen human king for them. So you've got this sort of dynamic in David that is both good and strange, right? Like, on the one hand, David wouldn't be if they had not rejected God as king. On the other hand, God has mercy and is going to work through their horrible choice to bring them back to God as king, in, we know, in Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Incarnation. So he's got to work through David. And David is one after God. The Psalms of David picture, by and large, now, not entirely, but by and large, they picture the suffering that will be required for God's kingdom to come in a world that rejects God as king. David is a suffering king. And that's both true in the Psalms and in the stories of his life. Psalm 3 begins this way. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Now remember Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who walks not. He meditates in the word day and night. Not, walks not in the way of the wicked, but he meditates in the word day and night. On his law he meditates. He will prosper. Well, the king was always in, in Israel supposed to be given a copy of the law that they could read. They were to meditate in it day and night. You see, the king was first and foremost to be a righteous one who resisted the wicked. That's how justice would come in the kingdom. That when the king resisted wicked people, no injustices would be done. And when they embraced God's righteousness, then justice would be had for the oppressed. You would have peace and justice, the things that are throughout the scriptures that describe the kingdom of God. This psalm, Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? It is a call for the Lord's rescue and also an affirmation of trust in the Lord. The early psalms make clear that God's king will have to walk by faith. The peoples of Psalms 
Psalm 2, are not just against the anointed one to come, they are against the anointed, the anointed one in David himself and Solomon and so forth. The peoples of this world rise up against the Lord's anointed in its original manifestation, David, and in all subsequent manifestations as well. The historical note at the top of Psalm 3 says, When he fled from his son Absalom. What, what strikes me about that is that this occurs much later in David's life. Absalom rebelling against him. It occurs much later than many of the other events described in the Psalms, yet the kingdom's hold, even at that late stage in his life, was shaky at best. The kingdom was already David's. He had been anointed by Samuel. It was not yet, certainly in his early life when Saul was out to kill him, but apparently even when Absalom, much later in his kingship, it's it's not fully his. It's not fully there. There's this sort of you know, this sort of holding on, sort of letting go kind of aspect. We call it in New Testament terms the already not yet of the kingdom. When Christ came, the kingdom came already. He came as king, but we do not yet see it fully manifest. That already not yet aspect is really clear in the Psalms as well. After two more Psalms that reveal distress and lament, Psalm 6 begs the age-old kingdom question, How long, Lord? How long? And you'll see that many times in the Psalms. Why are they crying out, how long? Well, for sure, because blessed is the one who walks in the commandments of the Lord, and not so the wicked. Well, wait a minute, I live in a world where everything appears to be in reverse. The wicked seem to prosper, the righteous seem to suffer. How long, O Lord? It requires faith to walk in His ways. Psalm 7 is a consummate kingdom prayer as it cries out for God to decree justice. And in verses 6 and 9 you read this, Awake, my God, decree justice. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure you, the righteous God who probes minds and hearts. But before that, the psalmist prays, Lord, if I've done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or without cause, have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. That's a pretty strong curse one calls down on himself if he's not followed the ways of the Lord. But notice this. On the one hand, he cries out for God to wake up. That's what awake means. Wake up and act and decree justice to bring about justice in the land, right? On the other hand, he realizes that that's a scary thing to do because if I'm unjust, if I've been unjust somewhere, then deal with me. Of course, we all begin to realize as we understand the gospel that that's a both and. The world is filled with injustice, right? And so am I. My heart responds in ways that are wrong. So, Christ, what is His work? He's making me just. He not only declares that I am just, His Word has the power to make me so, to cause me to live that way. And so, the psalmist is crying out for God's justice in the world. And he's also recognizing that there's always the chance that his own heart is wrong. Justice comes with God's reign, the reign of His anointed one. We read this in the book of Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And, and again, this child-born son given in, in Isaiah is referring to a future Davidic king. The government, you could put in parentheses there, the kingdom. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You've seen this in your Christmas cards, right? Familiar with this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with what? Justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Justice requires that our own hearts are examined and addressed, not just those of our enemy. Then we get to Psalm 8 and 9. And they lift our eyes up to see God's rule. I mean, it's up from Psalm Really, two up and through, through seven, everything's downer. Nothing's going well. But then you, you get to Psalm 8 and 9, and they lift your eyes up to see God for who He really is, which is necessary. Psalm 8, He made the heavens. He made humans such that they would be as vice regents of righteousness in the earth. His name is majestic. He's king. Psalm 9, He reigns forever. He rules the world in righteousness. He's like a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. It is surely a cry for God's kingdom to come. When He says, Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. But then Psalm 10 feels like an about-face, which is interesting. I'll explain why momentarily. In Psalm 10, it's, Kind of, why does your rule seem so far away? Why do the wicked rule the day? Now, oddly enough, Psalm 9 and 10 were originally in the Hebrew psalm book, one psalm. Now, for, for reading purposes, they've been split now into two. Um, and they seem so vastly different in so many ways. One describes God's kingdom for all its reality, what we know that is ultimately true. And the other describes what we see and experience in the earth. The fact that they paint two very different pictures captures the tension of the already not yet kingdom of God. It speaks to the necessity of faith. These prayers, the Psalms, are the language of faith. The Psalms are the language of faith. Psalm 13 pleads with the Lord. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, those are the kinds of questions that those who live by faith pray. And if we think that they are outdated, if we think that, well, somehow, you know, we shouldn't really pray these things, we should remember that Christ himself cried from the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, it is reasonable to assume that all of the lament psalms, the ones that cry out how long, the ones that are lamenting how bad things are, lament's just a kind of a nice word for complaint. <laughs> I mean, it's what it is. These, these lament psalms, uh, I think they picture the sufferings of God's ultimate king, Jesus, which is why the New Testament just so freely borrows from the psalms and applies them to Christ. He suffered as God's king. The kings of this earth were stood against him. In fact, Psalm 2 is the very text that's quoted by the apostles in Acts 4 in their prayer and applied to the, the crucifixion of Christ and their own sufferings as well. Then you get to the 18th Psalm. In the 18th Psalm, we, we finally get a psalm of victory, 
right? Here's this glorious, victorious psalm. And David's how long is answered. I mean, he's been asking how long. He's been asking, Lord, what, when? When are you going to do something? Well, in Psalm 18, he finally gets it. In fact, if, if, if you read the thing, at the, the, you know, the, the description at the top of the psalm that uh, tells you what, what might have been going on historically at that time, you find out that this is a psalm after he's delivered from Saul's pursuit to kill him. I mean, Saul's been trying to kill him. Saul's been trying to kill him. Saul's been trying to kill him. All the time, he has opportunity to kill Saul and won't take it because he's God's anointed. He refuses to inflict harm on Saul, even though he's his enemy, because he's God's anointed. I won't, I won't do that. And then when he finds out that Saul is dead and he's king, he's, well, the guy who announces it to him, uh, who, who, who took part in killing him, well, they, he dealt, deals with him because you touched God's anointed. But then in this Psalm 18, where he's looking back on this victory, he talks about how all his enemies were slain. And that's true. But you find that David didn't do the slain in this particular case. Somebody else did. He, in, in hindsight, he can see that the Lord was at work. But he was one who waited on the Lord. And, and in Psalm 18, all is well in the world again. Everything is right. You have this momentary respite when... The tension between the already and the not yet seems to have disappeared. Life is good. You know, it's kind of like right after you get married to the person you love and everything is good. You know, in that honeymoon phase. And, and wow, my life is solved. And then you run into the troubles of marriage. <laughs> and you go, okay, my life's a little bit more difficult than I thought, right? You've got to work through that. And you'll have, you'll have moments of respite throughout your time in your marriage, right? Well, life is that way. God gives us victory. He brings us joy. And we have psalms that, that express that. Psalm 19, in the midst of that joy, we have what? He exalts the law of the Lord in all its perfections. You know, the law of the Lord seems perfectly good when all is going well. Now, when things aren't going so well, we keep kind of scratching our heads a bit. So you can see why Psalm 19 fits well right after Psalm 18. What I'm wanting you to begin to see is... is how there is an implicit story that can be put together as one uses a sanctified and biblically informed imagination to walk through the Psalms. Now what I want to do under the second heading is zoom out and see the bigger picture. So now we're going to back up a bit. This idea that I'm proposing that we should consider the arrangement of the Psalms was actually introduced in 1985 by a guy named Gerald Wilson. And, and he noted that Psalm 1 served as an introduction to the whole, and that, that, that Psalms were arranged into five books, noting that each of the five books ends with a kind of benediction by blessing God. So in Psalm 41.13, the end of the first book, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. In Psalm 72.18, the end of the second book, Praise be to the Lord, God, God, the, to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. And then it says, this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Um, and then Psalm 89, verse 52. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, uh, verse 48. Again, the end of the fourth book. Uh, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. And then and Psalm 145, verse 21, effectively the end of the fifth book, um, we have, 
my mouth will speak uh, in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. And that psalm exalts God as king who reigns with grace and compassion. And then it ends with that blessing of God. Now, that fifth book, and really included in the fifth book, but really after that benediction, you have Psalms 146 through 150, which are an extended doxology, a fitting conclusion to the whole psalm. Just all of creation praising and worshiping God. It begins with this tension between the kings of the earth rising up against the Lord, but it ends with all creation and submission and adoration. There's, a, there's an eschatology, if you will, an end times teaching in the Psalms. A looking forward to a day when everything is under God's righteous and just rule. And you see that in the Psalms. Wilson also noted that the first three books deal heavily with the rise and safety of the Davidic kingdom. But they end in Psalm 89 with the seeming failure of that promise. Now, I say seeming, we'll we'll talk about that. But let's look at Psalm 89, if you would. And I'm going to read a a, a fairly large section of the 89th Psalm, starting in verse 20 and ending in, in, well, verse 46 eventually. But let's look at, at this 89th Psalm. Again, this is the last psalm in book three. The first three psalms really focus on the psalms or books, the psalms of David and his kingdom and the promise of his kingdom to come and, and, the, and, and the ongoing sustenance of that kingdom. We read this, and starting in verse 20, I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. If, the sons, uh, if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. But then listen to where he shifts immediately. Where the psalmist goes with this, I mean, wow, that's all glorious, right? And then listen to what he says. But, but you have rejected. You have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his uh, walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of the sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne on the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. Wow. 
first, all your glorious promises to David, then how you have failed to keep them. Pretty strong, isn't it? A little surprising to have in our Bible. But there it is. I think that tension finds resolution in the final cries in verse 46 when he says, How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? There seems to be a faint hope in the, in the psalmist that, that God must have a plan. I mean, surely this can't go on forever. When, when, when Israel was taken into captivity and then later Judah into Babylon, the Davidic kingdom for all intents and purposes, appeared to be completely gone and eliminated. The dynasty was gone. I mean, even when they came back, the people that were in charge were hardly kings and hardly had the capability of kings. From that point forward, Psalm 90 to the end of the Psalms, the emphasis is on Yahweh as king over all the earth, not a mere human king in the Davidic line. I mean, we know that God's answer is that He will not hide Himself forever, but He'll make Himself known in Jesus as King, who was from the line of David. So far, first two points, we've seen that the Psalms are prayers for a broken world in which the kingdom of God has not already come in fullness, so that we cry out for God's kingdom come. When the kingdom comes, we... Know that the wicked will be called to account and the oppressed will be set free. We've seen that ultimately, uh, the people of God are not looking for merely a Davidic king, but a divine king who comes in the son of David, Jesus Christ. So those are all some of the things we've seen in this storyline of the, of the text. But now I want to turn our attention to how these things can inform our own praying. How do we use the Psalms then to pray? And so, under our third heading, the Psalter and us, why, why pray the Psalms? You might want to call this heading. Why, why pray the Psalms? In the Psalms, the rejection and suffering of the righteous are the rejection and suffering of Christ, the righteous one. The anointed one, the Messiah. Now, why would we still pray them, you might ask, if they were the rejections and sufferings of Christ? Well, because we too take up a cross and follow him as the means of his kingdom work. So we too will suffer and be rejected and experience that, those sufferings. Like the forerunners to Christ, so the followers of Christ also suffer and are rejected. We are called to share in Christ's sufferings and the glories to follow, so we too should share in his prayers, prayers for those suffering resistance from others to God's ways, uh, prayers from about spiritual enemies that are attacking us and human enemies. There are also prayers of victory and triumph, like the 18th Psalm, for those times when we experience it. On Pentecost Sunday of this year, June, I preached um, from 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, where we are told that God has anointed us. God has Christed us, you might say. He has anointed us. You see, we've been anointed for the same mission that was our king's mission, to bring liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is what the gospel does. 
And in a broken world, we proclaim an already not yet kingdom. So we need prayers that can be prayed in a broken world for the kingdom come. For the kingdom come. We need prayers in which we commit ourselves, as the Psalms do, to walking in God's ways, as we did in our call and response earlier. The Psalms not only help us to know that others have gone before us and felt the same emotions, but that one of them was Christ Jesus himself that went before us in, in this world of suffering. The Psalms help us know what we should long for. We should long for the end of wickedness and injustice and the bringing in of peace and restoration through Jesus Christ. These are the things we should long for. Now some may wonder, why do I pray them if I don't understand them? Fair question. Why do I pray them if I don't understand them? Well, truth is, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer long before we understand it. I've been praying the Lord's Prayer since I was a child. I think I've only really begun to understand it maybe the last 10 to 15 years. But just regularly, often, daily, the Lord's Prayer and thinking about it and what it means. Uh, there's a, a book called Left to Tells by Immaculate Ilabagiza, and she went through the Rwandan genocide as the uh, object of the, uh, the genocide. I mean, she was one of those that was to be snuffed out, and they were specifically looking for her by name to kill her. And she, through about a 90-day period, endured you know, the, the terror of being sought and killed, and, and even there being within inches of her, and, and the Lord hiding her. And all she knew to pray throughout that time. And she, she was just relate, raised in you know, the church of, of, of that world that she lived in. And she knew the Lord's Prayer. And she kept praying the Lord's Prayer. But as she prayed it over that 90 days. And I mean probably hundreds of times a day. Because she had so much time that her mind would otherwise wander. She began to understand it. And as she understood it she began to pray for her enemies. And as she prayed for them. God then began to change her heart, and then she has been used by God to be uh, cleansing for that nation, to be one of the people that brought back forgiveness and restoration because of what she learned just praying the Lord's Prayer, which she didn't even understand when she started. I think what Bonhoeffer says about praying the Psalms applies both to the Lord's Prayer, but to the Psalms very much so as well. He says this, how am I to pray something that is still so incomprehensible to me? His answer to his question, how are you to understand what you have not yet prayed? Rather than our own prayer being the standard for the psalm, it is rather the psalm that is the proper standard for our prayer. I may not understand it, but it's teaching me what I need to know about prayer. I'll, I'll put Bonhoeffer slightly differently. It's the same, saying the same thing. We learn how to pray by praying rightly. And the Psalms, as does the Lord's Prayer, teaches us how to do that. It teaches us how to pray rightly. It, it's like gymnastics. You learn how to be a gymnast by doing gymnastics over and over with a coach teaching you to do it rightly. No, that's bad form. Do good form. Do it over and over. And you're really bad at it when you start. I mean terrible at it when you start. But if you keep doing it and doing it, and I do not know this by experience, to be clear, with gymnastics, I mean, let's be, state the obvious. But you will become good. The psalmists are our coaches. The coaches will make better sense if we understand their context, which is why learning the story is helpful. But they coach us. They, they give us form. They teach us so that we might say things that we would not otherwise know to say. 
They teach us to pray in a broken world for the kingdom come. So just to summarize what, we, what I've said today, succinctly, the arrangement of the Psalter, and by the way, the Psalter is just another name for the whole book of Psalms, all the Psalms in their collection. The arrangement of the Psalter has an underlying story. When we begin to read the Psalms in that framework, with that understanding in mind, they teach us the language of faith. They teach us how to pray in a broken world for the kingdom come. The kingdom to come, yes, and the kingdom... Heavenly Father, I pray that the result of this message is that we would put effort into applying this to to using the Psalms in prayer and that that we'd gradually become more and more fruitful in doing that as we begin to think about them in their original setting and what those prayers meant and what they mean for us. I pray that we use these words for your glory and the good of God's people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.